In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today we hear one of the most famous passages that we read during the year. Passage of the Prodigal Son, the story of the Prodigal Son. And sometimes when we know a story very well, if we know it very well, we kind of skip over it and we don't give it a chance to meditate and learn from it. So we can see some of the lessons that maybe, uh, although we've heard this story before, that maybe we haven't meditated on in the past. If you look first at the father, the father who is a sort of living in the village, and he's imagining after his son asks for his inheritance and goes away from him, he's waiting in the village, and he maybe is imagining that his younger son is going to eventually fail. He anticipates maybe that his son is going to return someday. But after a while, the father and probably even the people in the city, if you can imagine the people in the village, they would probably conclude either that the son is a complete failure or that maybe he's even dead. Or at least he may as well be dead, right? Or at the very least you could say maybe that he was lost. But the father is longing for the son. He waits for him. Other people that maybe were in the village, if you can imagine the story, they would have talked about the father. How did he do this impossible thing? He gave away, you know, in, in, in the Old Testament, the older son gets twice as much of a portion as the younger son. So he's the younger son. So he'll get one third of the inheritance and the older son is getting two thirds. So he gave away a third of his inheritance. The people in the village, you know, they might have told the father that he shouldn't have done that. Or at least if they're not going to say that, they're talking about him, saying what a strange or a foolish thing. But the father waits. He waits maybe that he will return one day. Maybe even as a beggar, maybe as a failure, but the father is waiting. And the father knows that if his son returns, that the young man is going to have to face the people of the village. Can imagine? You know, like you, you can imagine the son, the older son, he's working out in the fields. The fields is a different place from where they live in the village. So you can imagine when the son comes to where he lives, all the people that are in the village are going to see him. They're going to see him come back. Prodigal, by the way, means like a wasteful spending, wasteful way of living. So if you can see, or if you can imagine, the people, the citizens of the village, they'll see him, they'll see him coming in rags, they'll see him sort of dirty, and they'll see him coming back. And the father is still waiting for him. He's standing, waiting, watching, looking, anticipating the, the return of his son. And we heard in the gospel, in the passage that we read, that the son had a plan. He said, I'm going to go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned. But the father has his own plan as well. He knows what he'll do if the day comes that the son is going to return. So he waits day after day, looking down the, the street of the village, the road to the house, looking over to the horizon to see if the lost son would come back. You can imagine the son, as he is walking to the village, he's practicing what he's going to say to his father. You know, when you have something very important and you're very nervous, so you're practicing over and over again. And he's saying, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And he's just repeating this over and over and over again as he is kind of walking to the village. He's thinking to himself, I can't even ask him to accept me back as a son. Just make me, let me work so I can earn my keep. Just take me back and I'm going to make it worth it for you. He's genuinely repentant, but still at this point, he does not know his father very well. He thinks that he can earn his way back. Okay, The father has his own plan. And he puts his plan actually into action. He's going to reach the son before the son even goes home. And he's going to achieve the reconciliation in public. So that nobody in the village can dare say anything. They can't treat him badly. They can't, he can't be cut off from the people. 
And so the father is waiting, watching, looking down the road. So the father, he sees the son from a far distance. He sees him from far away. It reminds me of the book of Isaiah. There's a passage in Isaiah 57. It says that God proclaims peace. Peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. This is what the father is setting out to do. He's going to do a dramatic action. He's going to announce peace to the person, to the son who is far off, who has been seen at a great distance. Who is the near one? If he's the far one, who is the near one? The near one is the older brother, right? So the father breaks any patterns of what you could think about what would happen for a father living, or a wealthy father living in the ancient Middle East, right? He takes, it says he runs, so he must have taken the bottom of his, of his robes, lifted them up and started running to meet his son. And he grabs him in his arms and he kisses him. And he does this before the son, the lost son is even able to confess his sin. Ancient, Middle Eastern, older, wealthy landowners don't run around in the streets in robes. Right? Dignified men don't run. But that didn't matter to him. It didn't matter to the father. The father had compassion on the son to heal him, to guide him, to restore him. And he doesn't even wait, like I said, for the son to make it to the village. He doesn't wait even for the son to speak. He kisses his dirty son, hugs the son that is in rags. And he does it right at the edge of the village and embraces him. And the son is overwhelmed. Remember, like I said, the son is practicing his speech. He's going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me as one of your hired servants. But if you read the gospel, when he comes to talk, he doesn't even get to finish the sentence. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't even finish the sentence. He now understands that he can't work for the reconciliation to be achieved. His place is as a son in his father's house. And the reconciliation comes from the repentance of the son, but also through the un unconditional love of the father. Through the son's act of recognizing his fault and returning. He sees all of a sudden that the only way home is through his father's heart. So the younger son sees the goodness of his father demonstrated, right? He condescends, coming down to his level, putting off his glory, running and hugging and kissing before he can speak. The son thought in the beginning that reconciliation would come as his acceptance back as a servant. He thought that reconciliation would come through humbling himself, taking the role of a hired worker. But it's the father actually who humbles himself. The father who becomes like a servant. And the father has come down to reconcile his son to himself. And so we see in the, in the parable that the father is a symbol of Christ himself. Isaiah says in another place, he proclaims peace to those who are far and those who are near. The parable of the prodigal son, by the way, is given in Luke chapter 15. At the beginning of this chapter, so why does, why does Christ say this parable? At the beginning of the chapter, the Pharisees are talking and they're saying, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And so our Lord Jesus Christ replies with this story. He says, yes, I do eat with sinners. I look for them like a good shepherd would seek a lost lamb. I look for them like a woman would look for her coin that she's missing. And actually, it's even worse than that. I run down the road, and when I see my lost son, I shower him with kisses, and I embrace him and escort him home so that I can eat with him. Christ is our mediator. That's what he's trying to tell the Pharisees. This is reinforced in that not only does he go out to greet the younger son, 
if you look at the end of the passage, he goes out to meet the older son. He goes out to meet the older son. If you look at the passage, he says, he was angry and would not go in. The older son, he said he was angry and would not go in. But what, so what's the next sentence? It says, therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. The elder son had a bitter heart, hardened, hurtful, hypocritical. We read how when the father takes his younger brother home and kills the fatted calf, the older son doesn't even enter the banquet. He's angry and he's hurt and he's jealous because he thought the, the father loves the younger son better. He's saying, I'm the one who always was with you. I loved you best. I'm not going to come into the banquet. By the way, by his refusal to come into the banquet, this is like a public humiliation for the father. Imagine if you invited people to your house and you have people at your house for dinner and one of your kids decides, I'm not going to sit at the table. I'm not coming. I'm going to stay in my room. I don't want to be here. It's embarrassing. It's an embarrassment. But, this, but the father, he doesn't, you know, I think a normal thing that most of us would have done in that place would say, okay, I'm going to leave my son in the room. I'm going to enjoy my dinner. I'm going to have my fun with my uh, friends or whoever I invited to. Uh, to dinner with me and I'll deal with my son afterwards but the father doesn't do that the father goes out the father goes out and pleads with his son he's not angry at the older son and he doesn't just ignore him for the second time in the day he's willing to offer a costly demonstration of his love now his love is shown to the law keeper right the prodigal son was the law breaker now the older son, the law keeper, is showing his love to. Grace is being given to both of these sons. It would have been understandable if the father ignored the older son. He would be expected maybe to ignore him and deal with him later. But he doesn't. He goes out. This time he's not running down the street to greet his child. But this time he's going out into his courtyard to plead. That's the word he says. Plead with his son, not caring that the guests are probably right there. They might see him or might hear him or might know what's going on. And the older one says, all these years I have been slaving for you. I have been your servant and now I'm angry. Why was the elder son so angry at his father's actions? Because the father called for a celebration. He called for the very best for his younger son. He called for a feast, a banquet. And why did the father throw the feast? I think if we look at it in a very simple way, we say the father threw the feast because... The son's back. He's celebrating the son is back. But actually, if you look carefully, there's another reason why he makes this feast. The father says he was lost and is found. So who found him? The father, right? The father found the lost son. Where did he find him? At the edge of the village. The son was still dead and still lost at the end of the village. And just as the shepherd had to pay a high price to find his lost sheep, and even as the woman had to work and seek diligently for her lost, lost coin, also the father goes out in a demonstration of love to find and to resurrect his son from the dead. So the banquet is a celebration of the success of finding as in resurrecting the dead and lost child. The father actually is celebrating his own work in the son. What does the, the, one of the workers that the older son how does he answer when, he, when the older son says, what's all the noise, what's all the commotion? He says, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The boy says that the father has received his child back in peace. So the father is not just celebrating 
that his rebellious son returned safely. No, he, he's rejoicing in the reconciliation that has been achieved. Reconciliation between the child and himself. And what about the banquet? What does it mean? What does the father do when he receives and kisses his son? The father commands the servants to do what? To dress the son as he would a king. The young man isn't told, go take a shower and change. The servants are coming out and dressing him. The servants are told to respect his son, to receive him in peace. Give him the best robe. Whose robe do you think it would have been at this time? He gave him all his inheritance. It's the father's robe. It has to be the father's robe. Now his rags are exchanged for the best robes. It reminds us, it says, those who, the people who go into the feast of God have to be dressed in the robes of the Father. And this is what Christ wants to do with all of us. In Isaiah, he says, He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. And maybe if you remember the parable in Matthew chapter 22, when he's entering, the people are entering a wedding banquet, and somebody entered without robes supplied by the king. It didn't go very well for him. The father has servants dress the sinner in his own robes of righteousness. So our Lord Jesus Christ dresses us who come to him in repentance, who desire to eat with him with the signs of freedom, the freedom of the children of God. He doesn't want hired servants. He wants guests dressed in robes. He gave him a a ring. A ring is a, a sign of authority, sign of power, sign of honor as royalty. The children of God are supposed to be at the feast, at the banquet table, and he's wearing sandals. The boy is reconciled not only to the father, but to the entire community. And the joy is shared and celebrated at the banquet. What does the elder son think about the banquet? What does he think? The elder son's heart is full of envy, pride, bitterness, sarcasm, anger, resentment. All of this, he thinks that he's defending honor. He's defending his honor and the honor of his father. The father answers his older son in love. He speaks with him with gentleness. The word that he uses when he says son has a connotation like sort of like my dear child. He's reaching out to the elder son just like he did to the younger one. He embraced and kissed the younger son, but the elder one won't accept embraces or kisses now. So the father embraces him and loves him in a different way, calling him my dear child. These wo- the, the, the words that he says come from a wounded heart, a suffering one, because the father desires to have both sons, both children in the house. So in love, he's pleading, entreating his son. But the son insults him with bitter accusations. You love him more than you love me. The father reminds the older son, it makes sense for us to be happy, to be glad, to rejoice when lost sinners are found, when dead, dead children come to life. The father just very simply says, you're the heir. All that I have is yours. You're the one who's with me always. What more do you need? What more do you want? So when he says this, the father removes the possibility that he loves the older son more, or the younger son more. The father comes with unreserved, unlimited love for both of his children. The elder son says, look at these many years I have been serving you. Here, actually, in this part, he's like the younger brother. He wants his inheritance to spend it with his friends. He says, I've been serving you and you never let me have a party with my friends. 
His desire is to be just like the younger son was. Even though the elder son sees his father as a master for whom he's been slaving for. Even though, if you look when he talks to him, he does not call him father. Even when he talks about the younger son, he says, that son of yours. But the father still speaks gently to his son. He says, dear child. And he talks about his brother. The father is not going to let the family dissolve in bitterness. He seeks the young son and the older son. So in this, in this parable, our Lord Jesus Christ is teaching us about two kinds of people. Those people who are lawless without the law and those people who are lawless within the law. Both of them rebel. Both of them break the heart of the Father. Both of them end up far away. One in a distant land, physically, and one in a distant land, spiritually. To both, He shows unexpected mercy and love. Both think of themselves as slaves, when what the Father really wants is sons. The Father doesn't want to make them to be slaves. In self-humiliation, He seeks the lost. In waiting watchfulness, He finds the people who are distant, and He brings them closer. Just like Isaiah says, He proclaims peace to those who are near and those who are far. Did the elder son hear his voice? Was he eventually found? The story doesn't continue, we don't know. But I should ask myself, do I hear his voice entreating me, pleading with me? Do I see our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, waiting for me? Do I hear in the preaching of the gospel the mercy and the grace of God coming to me? Do you see him seeking you? Have you heard his invitation to come back to his house? One son was saved from death and servitude. A second son insisted on remaining a slave, a hired servant. The father, however, welcomes both of them home. We should answer during this Lenten time his call to repentance, his call to return to his house, to turn away from sin, turn away from our bitterness and our self-righteousness back to our father's home. And glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.